Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. On December 11th, 1913, 35-year-old John Duval Gluck Jr., and a handful of volunteers stared in trepidation at the growing pile of Christmas letters sitting in front of them. They were in the small back office of Henkel's Chop House, a steakhouse in the heart of New York City. Between the typewriters, the makeshift desks where volunteers worked, and the letters themselves, space was tight. And Gluck was panicking. Three days before, he'd volunteered to answer letters written to the North Pole by the needy children of New York with gifts and treats. The press latched onto the story, thrilled that the Big Apple finally had its very own Santa Claus. But in that moment, Gluck feared he had set himself up for failure. His newly founded Santa Claus Association lacked the resources, the manpower, and the money they needed to complete the operation. On the surface, Gluck's dismay seemed entirely selfless, downtrodden at the thought of letting children down. But in reality, Gluck was playing a long game, and one with much higher stakes. If he played his cards right, he would be making money hand over fist in unregulated donations. But first, he had to convince the people of New York that his association was worth donating to, that they could accomplish exactly what they promised, to make this Christmas the best these children had ever seen. After that, the city would be his for the taking. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artist for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artist in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're covering John Gluck Jr., otherwise known as the Santa Claus Man. We'll explore how Gluck's desire for fame and wealth led him to abandon his business ventures and establish himself as a reputable good Samaritan. We'll see how in just a few short years, he built a successful charitable organization, laying the foundation for what was actually a massive fraud operation. Next week, we'll track how Gluck expanded his donor base and started bringing in thousands of dollars of unregulated donations for a Christmas building in the center of New York City. Finally, we'll learn how the Commissioner of Public Welfare ultimately exposed Gluck for the fraud he was. Praised as a generous do-gooder, John Duval Gluck Jr. volunteered to raise money for New York's needy children and answer the thousands of letters they sent to Santa Claus. It was a huge undertaking, and one that Gluck led out of the goodness of his heart. Or at least, that's what he told the public. What they didn't know was that Gluck had created the perfect cover for a seasonal con with his newly founded Santa Claus Association. Taking advantage of the holiday spirit that flooded the city every December, Gluck brought in thousands of dollars of donations for needy children and eventually pocketed most of the cash for himself. He spent 15 years as New York's own bona fide Santa Claus before he was exposed and the association dissolved. Quite fittingly, Gluck was born on Christmas Day in 1877. For the first two years of his life, he was raised in Brooklyn until the success of his father's customs brokerage business allowed the family to move to Westfield, New Jersey. His father expected his oldest son to follow him into the brokerage business. But Gluck had larger aspirations, even as a child. The oldest of five brothers, he took on the role of entertainer from a young age. He was constantly making up stories and playing pranks on his other siblings. Though he didn't know exactly what he wanted to do with his future, he always knew that he wanted to be someone important. Gluck had a comfortable, happy childhood, but some of his favorite memories were of his holidays with his family. The Glucks always made these celebrations into big occasions at a time when holidays weren't observed with the same fervor as today. In fact, up until the mid-1800s, partying on Christmas Day was frowned upon. It was seen strictly as a religious occasion. It wasn't until 1870 that the US government declared Christmas a national holiday and its popularity grew with each year. But the Glucks were ahead of the curve. Their Christmases were always large and cheerful, and they often invited those who were less fortunate to celebrate, both the holiday and John Jr.'s birthday, with them. Gluck remained close with his family into adulthood, and despite his more colorful ambitions, 
He joined his father's customs brokerage business when he was 24 years old. That year, in 1902, Gluck's father renamed the company John D. Gluck and Son, locking in his fate as a broker. For years, his goals of notoriety remained on the back burner. But in 1907, when Gluck was 29, everything changed. That year, on Halloween, Gluck's father died suddenly, leaving the responsibilities of the business on the young man's shoulders. It was a devastating blow to Gluck. The hopes he had of breaking free from the business and making a name for himself died with his father. Now, the burdens of the company were his and his alone. But as he eased into the role of business owner, he soon found another opportunity to live the life he'd imagined. Gluck was extremely aware of the role that the press had in influencing public opinion. And though his work in customs brokerage wasn't especially tantalizing, he found a way to make it more appealing. Gluck decided the best way to grow his business was to publicize himself. One afternoon, Gluck got a call from a British client, a company called Dick Car Works. The client confided a scandalous story. The executive's daughter had just eloped across the pond to New York City with one of the company's employees. It was a disaster, and the executive was desperate for someone to pin down the two lovebirds. Because Gluck handled the company's imports in America, the executive pleaded for his help, asking that he find the couple and send them back to the UK. Gluck knew there wasn't much he could do or say to change the minds of two consenting adults, but he tracked them down anyway and delivered the message. And in the process, he made sure to alert the press of the outrageous story. Foreigners, forbidden love and a runaway marriage. Surely this story would sell big. And soon, his efforts paid off. When the New York Times eventually ran the article, Dick Carworks was suddenly the talk of the town. And more importantly, Gluck's name appeared in print for the first time. He was beside himself with joy. It was a new kind of feeling, an elation really. And he couldn't get enough of it. Gluck's impulse to leak the story to the press for his own glory, as well as his future publicity stunts, indicate that he may have exhibited traits of narcissistic personality disorder, and in particular, the characteristics of a grandiose narcissist. According to a study run by the University of Warsaw in Poland, grandiose narcissists are more dominant and extroverted than their vulnerable counterparts. Their most defining trait is how they explicitly seek out attention from the world. A study by the psychology department of the University of Georgia explained that, in the digital age, this type of narcissism commonly compels individuals to promote themselves aggressively on social media through constant updates and by seeking out both likes and followers. In the 1900s, Gluck's Twitter was the New York Times. 
After his minor success with Dick Car Works in April of 1904, other companies approached Gluck with publicity requests, hoping he could help them garner the same kind of political attention. Soon, in addition to managing John D. Gluck and Son, he took on freelance work, including legal consulting and publicity jobs for organizations like the Republican League and the Merchant Marine Committee. Gluck organized extravagant member gatherings for these companies, as well as other large events, always making sure he received the appropriate credit and press coverage, of course. Around the time Gluck expanded his publicity business, the United States Postal Service was wrestling with its public image. With Christmas becoming more celebrated each and every year, hundreds of thousands of letters addressed to Santa Claus flooded post offices across the country. The letters, of course, couldn't be delivered as addressed. In the early 20th century, the North Pole hadn't yet been announced as Santa's headquarters. So instead, kids sent their messages to destinations like Ice Street, Cloudville, and Behind the Moon. As the news of these letters spread, the general public was eager to see the children's Christmas wishes granted. But despite the demand, the post office didn't know what to do with them. Instead, every year after the holidays, they burned the children's unopened messages to St. Nick. But as the first decade of the 1900s came to a close, the public backlash against this policy grew. The US Postal Service felt enormous pressure to find a solution to the Santa Claus problem. Finally, in December of 1911, Postmaster General Frank Hitchcock was forced to implement a new policy. He allowed members of the public to answer the children's letters and send them gifts. But despite all the negative press, not a single New Yorker stepped forward that year or the next to answer the letters. Not even Gluck. He was intrigued when he first heard about the new policy, but in 1911, the 33-year-old was busy. At the time, he was attempting to make a name for himself through his new publicity work. So for two years, the children's letters sat in post offices across the nation, unopened and unanswered. During that time, Gluck moved his offices to downtown Manhattan and slowly expanded his business network. Among his new contacts was George Tillieu. In 1897, Tillieu opened the popular steeplechase amusement park on Coney Island, and in 1913 was preparing for its 11th annual Mardi Gras festival. The highlight of the festival was a bullfight, the first one in New York City. It was a controversial sport until you needed a publicist to ensure the stadium was full. Enter 35-year-old John D. Gluck Jr. He took out newspaper ads, promising potential attendees three fierce bulls charging brave matadors in a breathtaking spectacle. He arranged for reporters to attend the show and spread the word in newspapers across the city. Members of the Humane Society and the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals protested the fight. 
but Gluck assured them and the audiences that neither the bulls nor the matadors would be injured. In fact, he advertised the event as completely bloodless. By September 9th, 1913, the day of the event, he'd managed to sell almost every ticket. According to Alex Palmer's biography on John Gluck, the 11th annual Mardi Gras festival kicked off without a hitch. The king and queen of the festival, actors John Bunny and Lillian Walker, led a parade of giant, show-stopping floats as the attendees watched in awe. Liquor and beer flowed freely as people played games, ate cheap boardwalk food, and took in the sights. As the clock struck 9.30 p.m., the crowds gathered excitedly in the specially constructed arena where the bullfight would take place. The matador, Enrique Robles, stepped into the ring with the intention of giving the audience a show. Unfortunately, the bull wasn't as vicious as Gluck's headlines claimed, so Robles improvised. He hit the beast on the nose to provoke a reaction. Robles and the audience got more than they bargained for. The bull charged the matador, who dodged him easily, but the enraged animal kept running straight into the wall of the arena, crashing into the barricade separating the viewers from the ring. Carnival goers ran, terrified. The impact knocked the bull unconscious, cutting his nose in the process. Doctors ran to examine the bloodied beast, while reporters fired questions at a stunned Gluck. But before he could pull himself together, the cops were already putting him in handcuffs. The police charged both Gluck and the event's organizers with baiting animals and animal cruelty. And though they were let go the next day with just a slap on the wrist and a few fines, the newspapers were malicious. Headlines across New York reported how Gluck, the event's press agent, was shamefully arrested. He was finally back in the newspapers like he'd always wanted, just not as he'd planned. But in a few short months, he would come up with a scheme that would not only clear his name, but have the whole city praising his legacy. One that would finally give him the attention he believed he so deserved, and a stream of unregulated revenue ripe for the taking. Coming up, Gluck jumps on a new opportunity to make a name for himself. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. 
And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now back to the story. In December of 1913, 35-year-old John Duvar Gluck Jr. was still stinging from the public failure of his infamous Mardi Gras bullfight. Meanwhile, the New York City Post Office collected hundreds of children's letters to Santa Claus with no clue what to do with them. The Post Office put out one last call for anyone willing to step up to answer the letters from children in need. And Gluck saw a new way to get his name out into the world through a cause no one could find fault with. He wrote to New York's postmaster, Edward M. Morgan, requesting the privilege of responding to the letters with the help of a few volunteers. Morgan, who had no other candidates or options, agreed to let Gluck take over the Santa Claus operation. He was eager to get the clamoring public off his back and let someone else step into the limelight. But playing Santa Claus wasn't quite as easy as donning a red suit and white beard. Before Gluck, several other charitable men and women tried to handle letters from their city's underprivileged children. They each ran into the same complications. Many of the kids over-exaggerated their family's need, taking money and gifts from those who were more desperate. But more concerning was the fact that the charities that took on this mission often operated without oversight, which made it easy for unscrupulous individuals to take advantage. As a result, any new attempts at handling the Santa Claus letters were met with healthy skepticism. But Gluck's many years as a business owner made him a master at logistics and organization. He told Morgan he would apply these same skills to the holiday letters. The system Gluck pitched to Postmaster Morgan was simple. First, he and his volunteers confirmed the letter's address to ensure that the post office hadn't accidentally sent them mail for any real New Yorkers with the last name Claus or Kringle. Then, they checked a record of previous mailings to make sure the child hadn't sent in multiple envelopes with the intention of getting more than one present. Once they verified this information, the volunteers looked into the requests themselves. If any of the letters described alarming conditions in the house, such as abuse, neglect, or starvation, they set them aside for the Public Charities Commission. And if the requests were too grandiose, one of the volunteers was sent to check out the situation at home to assess if the child really needed a gift donated by the public at all. After the letters were approved, Gluck's team then mailed them over to their donors, who would fulfill the children's requests by sending back gifts and messages. When pitching the idea to Morgan, Gluck was sure to emphasize that not a single penny 
went to the organization itself. All of the money went directly to those who needed it most. From the outside looking in, it was a foolproof plan. So, on December 8th, 1913, Postmaster Morgan happily handed over 500 letters from children all over the city to John Gluck. And the conman set up shop at his friend Paul Henkel's new steakhouse, Henkel's Chop House in Herald Square. Soon, the press came to cover Gluck's operation, dubbed the Santa Claus Association. Reporters who had belittled him just three months prior were now singing his praises. Newspapers across the city printed saccharine headlines like Kiddies' notes full of smiles and tears fill bag of Mr. Santa Gluck. Gluck was finally getting the praise and recognition he so longed for. When interviewed about his motivation for answering the letters, Gluck replied gleefully, Christmas should be a thrilling day in the year for children. That's all we're trying to do. There's no charity about it. We are purveyors of Christmas spirit. Soon, John's own publicity efforts and the public's boisterous reaction to the operation turned the trickle of messages into a flood. By December 11th, the volunteers of the Santa Association were fielding more than 500 new letters a day. A number Gluck's operation wasn't equipped to handle. While the organization explicitly asked donors to send gifts to the children themselves, many ignored this instruction. Instead, Good Samaritans dropped presents and packages at the doorstep of Henkel's Chop House. This required Gluck's volunteers to hand-deliver the gifts to children, but the dozen or so people he'd recruited wasn't nearly enough to both answer incoming letters and go knocking on doors. He was beginning to realize he was in over his head. By the end of the third day, Gluck was already looking down the barrel of another failure. This would be the second enterprise in three months that ended in disaster, and Gluck felt all his newfound importance slipping away. That is, until he received a fateful call from General Edwin Augustus McAlpin. McAlpin was one of New York's wealthiest businessmen. The inheritance from his family's tobacco fortune had made him a bona fide millionaire in the 1900s. And with $1 million in 1910 amounting to roughly $27 million today, this made Mr. McAlpin a very rich man indeed. But Edwin hadn't called Gluck to provide money. He was offering manpower, or rather, boy power. In addition to his business exploits, McAlpin was the chief scout of the American Boy Scouts. And when he read about the Santa Claus Association, he offered the scouts as volunteers to assist with whatever Gluck deemed necessary. John immediately accepted the proposition. Not only did he need the extra hands, 
but involving the Boy Scouts came with the additional benefit of legitimizing his efforts and making them appear even more wholesome. It was perfect. The next day, McAlpin sent a few hundred scouts over to Henkel's chop house to join the team, and Gluck was back on track. But it didn't solve all his problems. Gluck's next challenge was postage. In 1913, it cost two cents to mail a letter, which was inexpensive enough for individuals. But between the letters that were sent without stamps by poor children and the mail sent to donors from the association, the group was looking at footing a $1,000 bill, or over $25,000 today. Gluck knew that transparency in his donations was key to earning the public's trust. To get the public on his side and avoid their scrutiny for as long as possible, he needed to raise money creatively. So instead of soliciting money from private donors, he went to the same journalist that first reported on his operation. He published a request to the people of New York. In the piece, Gluck explained what the association needed the money for exactly how much they required, and why it was important. But most importantly, he encouraged people to donate by emphasizing that the funds were all for charity. This empathetic appeal worked like a charm, and donors immediately came to their aid. Because, as Gluck soon realized, it was far easier to solicit money when it was on behalf of poor children on Christmas. According to Forbes, individuals give 24% of their annual donations in the month between Thanksgiving and New Year's, well above the average percentage for the rest of the year. This is likely because the cultural expectations of the holidays prime people to spend money. And according to a study in the Journal of Risk and Uncertainty, Donors are more likely to give to organizations that benefit an individual recipient rather than fighting for a generic cause like homelessness or hunger. In the case of Gluck's charity, the beneficiary was very clearly laid out. A child in need who still believed in Santa Claus and the power of Christmas. By Christmas Day 1913, Gluck's Santa Claus Association had answered 17,000 letters, sent nearly $100,000 worth of gifts to the children of New York, and only spent $1,200 to make it happen. It was, in other words, a rousing success. It also gave Gluck the public attention he desperately craved. Newspapers praised his hard work and effort, and soon, other companies also started turning to him with new publicity requests. It's unclear whether Gluck started the Santa Claus Association with the simple intention of making a name for himself, or whether he always had financial fraud in mind. But eventually, he discovered it was the perfect opportunity to steal money from right under people's noses. An opportunity that he would come to take full advantage of in the years to come. 
One reason the con had potential was that Gluck was operating during a time when charities weren't properly regulated. This left the public in charge of discerning which causes were reputable and which weren't. John took every opportunity to sway public opinion about the Santa Claus Association. He claimed it was superior to other Santa letter organizations by design of his foolproof system. When interviewed by the New York Times magazine, John said, We simply offered to the people of New York the assurance that what they gave would really reach the poor in its grand total. In the interview, John also heavily credited his success to the American Boy Scouts, further emphasizing the organization's wholesomeness and legitimacy. The article ran on January 18, 1914, under the headline, Played Santa Claus and Solved an Economic Problem, and listed Gluck as a publicity man and efficiency engineer at his request. Gluck's connection to the Boy Scouts may have explained why he continued promoting their work long after the holidays. But if anyone looked too closely, they might have discovered that they were his latest publicity clients. After a series of alarming scandals, including an accidental shooting of a young scout, the Boy Scouts desperately needed to bolster their own reputation. And with Gluck's help, they were able to do exactly that. The catch? He took home 40% of the donations made to the organization. While this wasn't technically illegal, it was certainly morally ambiguous. Much like the infamous three-card Monty trick, where a scammer allows their marks to win the first couple of rounds before turning the cards on them, Gluck's self-promotion won him the complete trust of the public. The people of New York happily trusted him to reprise his role as St. Nick for next year's Christmas. So once again, Gluck was in need of donors. But this time, in order to secure his wealthy beneficiaries, he used a trick he picked up from the Honorable Boy Scouts. Gluck learned that awarding high-profile people with honorary titles was the perfect way to both give an organization legitimacy and to expand its network. In January of 1914, John knighted fellow New Yorkers Reverend Edward Gabler and Ralph E. Samuel, a fellow broker with deep pockets and an even deeper social circle. He gave them both the title of Honorary Vice President. Eventually, Gluck even persuaded New York Governor Martin Glynn to sign on as an honorary VP. With donors in place and his network now infiltrating New York's upper crust, Gluck made the Santa Claus Association an official year-round organization. On March 25, 1914, the 36-year-old entrepreneur formally organized the group and crystallized its purpose in a mission statement, 
which declared its primary objective to be the fostering of the true Christmas spirit to bring Christmas cheer into the homes of the poor. Gluck made the holiday his top priority. He moved the offices of John D. Gluck & Son to the corner of 33rd Street and 5th Avenue in Manhattan and renamed the space the Santa Claus Association Executive Office. He dedicated all of his free time during the off-season to promoting the organization. But John had good reason to be proactive about the association's future. World War I was on the horizon, and Americans now had something more important than children's unanswered Santa letters to think about. And as the holidays drew closer, Gluck grew increasingly concerned about sharing the spotlight with American soldiers overseas. Coming up, Gluck spins a web of lies to maintain interest in the Santa Claus Association and involves himself in the war effort. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. In December of 1914, 36-year-old John Duval Gluck Jr., prepared for his second year answering the Christmas letters of poor children all over New York. And as the United States watched the beginnings of World War I in trepidation, Gluck fought desperately to keep Americans interested in his Santa Claus Association. After all, he proved that he was capable of raising an incredible amount of money in a short amount of time without having to show anyone where it was going. And now that he'd made a name for himself, Gluck was convinced he could solicit even more donations from the willing public, this time not just to fund the Christmas wishes of children, but to line his pockets. Gluck's seemingly selfless dedication to his work caught the attention of William and Frederick Muschenheim. The Muschenheims looked after the renowned Hotel Astor in Manhattan and generously gave Gluck the use of their wine cellar for the 1914 holiday season. Gluck happily accepted the offer, and the Santa Claus Association officially moved their headquarters from Henkel's Chop House to the Astor. The cellar was a huge and stately space, which one of the volunteers affectionately dubbed the Santa Claus Cave. On December 1st, 1914, the cave opened for business. It was far more organized than the previous year's operation. On any given day, they had up to 200 volunteers, 
including the Boy Scouts who'd helped the previous season. In addition to his army of helpers, Gluck's board of honorary vice presidents gave him access to both the political and business spheres of New York City. But he had his sights set on a more prominent circle. The world of theater and celebrities. That month, Gluck approached Broadway producer Albert Woods and asked him to take some children's letters to promote the Santa Claus Association. Then, pretending to take Woods into his confidence, Gluck revealed that his support was absolutely vital for the organization's survival. He falsely claimed that the association was in deep financial trouble and that they needed to pull in extra funds to cover the cost of postage. Otherwise, Christmas would be cancelled. His lies worked. Woods agreed to donate one night of box office receipts from his production of Kick In and promoted the evening in conjunction with the Santa Claus Association. Woods also arranged for two of the show's stars, Josephine Victor and Maydell Turner, to come to the Santa Claus Cave for a photo opportunity. They were joined by yet another celebrity, King Bagot, otherwise known as the most photographed man in the world. Bagot starred in Ivanhoe and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, two of the most popular movies of the decade. His appearance at the cave drew dozens of reporters and photographers. Never one to miss a chance to grandstand, Gluck drew Bagot aside and convinced him to put on a Santa outfit for another photo op. Once he got Bagot on board, he had the reporters and photographers follow them to the brand new post office building on 8th Avenue. It was a chilly afternoon, but the press didn't complain. They knew that they were about to witness something special. As Gluck and Bagot climbed the building steps, Gluck handed Bagot an armful of envelopes with the words Santa Claus scrawled on the front in childish handwriting. Gluck then positioned the actor just so, stepped out of frame, and gave the photographers the signal. But as they lifted their cameras, Gluck hesitated for a moment. Bagot's fame would bring the association a whole new level of attention. Millions of New Yorkers would see the photo of their favorite celebrity. And in that moment, Gluck realized he wanted those eyes on him as well. So just before the shutters clicked, he stepped back into the shot. Gluck's intuition proved to be correct. The photo made him a public figure in New York and expanded his connections into the theater circle, bringing even more donors into the fold. And producer Albert Woods, true to his word, donated a grand total of $2,000 to the Santa Claus Association from the December 22nd performance of Kick In. After the publicity partnership with Woods, the Santa Claus Association now had more public support than ever before and larger coffers to fulfill the wish lists of New York's children. 
But with the looming threat of World War I hanging overhead, Gluck still found himself actively fighting for attention in the press. He realized that in order to keep his name in the headlines and to keep the donations pouring in, he would have to involve himself in the war effort. Gluck's solution was surprisingly prescient. He wanted to gather signatures from the children and parents that were already sending letters and call for a Christmas armistice lasting from Christmas Eve to December 28th. To get the idea off the ground, he knew he needed support from the highest authority of the land. So, never one to back away from a challenge, Gluck set his sights on his biggest target yet, President Woodrow Wilson. This was an intentional strategy, another trick from the con artist toolbox. Many scammers will try to convince their marks that what they're selling is genuine by roping in someone the marks trust. This could be an individual they know personally or a celebrity or public figure. Dr. Robert Cialdini wrote about this phenomenon in his book, Influence, wherein he called this tactic social proof. Cialdini proposed that because humans are inherently social creatures, they rely on others for social cues and clues on how to make decisions. The trick to persuading many people to buy into something is to first start by convincing one key person. Gluck hoped to apply this same principle here. By gaining the approval of President Wilson, he wanted to convince the whole world to stop fighting, all in the name of Christmas and Santa Claus. But this bold strategy didn't pay off. As author Alex Palmer wrote, Christmas cheer worked fine for private charity groups but not as official US policy, where the belligerent countries might misconstrue a call for an armistice. The federal government responded to Gluck's absurd request with a definitive no. But Gluck remained undeterred. Employing the same strategy that had been so successful for him the year before, he turned once again to the press. Gluck told newspapers that he had the signatures of a million children asking for peace on the front lines. He also reached out to American embassies overseas with the same sentimental story. By complete coincidence, Pope Benedict XV also called for a Christmas armistice just two days after Gluck went to the press. It was yet another example of a major public figure standing behind Gluck, except that this time he managed to get the Pope's support without even trying. But the idea was still met with derision. No one could fathom the idea of two armies putting down their guns over the holidays. The countries at war refused an official ceasefire. Gluck was disappointed that his call for peace wasn't taken seriously. But shockingly, the soldiers on the front lines had the same idea. Though they had no access to newspapers 
and weren't aware of the armistice Gluck was proposing, they staged their own. They acted independently, deliberately disobeying orders from their homelands. On December 25, 1914, on Gluck's 37th birthday, both German and Allied soldiers laid down their weapons. They crossed the border into no man's land to greet one another, sing carols, and exchange food and gifts. It was truly a Christmas miracle. Gluck wasn't responsible at all for the soldiers' actions, of course, but in typical narcissistic fashion, he tried to take credit for the armistice anyway. The Santa Claus Association put out a press statement claiming Mr. Gluck was the first man to enter a plea for a Christmas armistice, a suggestion that was favorably entertained by high British officials and called to the attention of His Majesty King George V. The publicity from the Christmas armistice put the Santa Claus Association on the map in a whole new way. Gluck had already earned the city's trust, made a name for himself as a charitable Samaritan, and established a reliable track record. If anyone had doubts about him when he first started, they were certainly appeased by the end of his second Christmas. All of his hard work gave John Duval Gluck Jr. access to thousands of dollars of donations from the hard-working citizens of New York. And now, it was time for the real con to begin. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two on John Gluck Jr. We'll follow the holiday scammer as he solicits money for a brand new skyscraper dedicated to the spirit of Christmas. We'll also learn about how his blatant pleas for donations drew the attention and the ire of Commissioner Bird S. Kohler and the circumstances that led to the association's demise. For more information on John Duval Gluck Jr., amongst the many sources we used, we found The Santa Claus Man by Alex Palmer extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Joel Stein. This episode of Con Artists was written by Liz Dorovitsin, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden.